Please be seated. Second Samuel chapter 2 this evening, and if you're with us tonight without a Bible, we sure want you to be able to follow along with us, not only with the ear gate, but also with the eye gate, and there are men coming up the aisle right now. If you just get their attention, they have Bibles, and they'll be happy to get one into your hands. Second Samuel chapter 2. King Saul is now uh, dead. David receives the news while he's in the city of Ziklag, which was a, a city that had been given to him and his men as kind of a refuge in the area of the Philistines. David has a promise from God that he is to be the next king of Israel. And so he asked the Lord, what do we do now? And God spoke to him and said, I want you to move you, your family, the people that are with you to Hebron. And so he did. Hebron was a very major city that in a territory that had been allotted to the Jewish tribe of Judah, which was David's tribe. And so they moved there to, to Hebron. And upon coming to Hebron, the men of Judah recognized and acknowledged David as the next king of Israel, and they anointed him as the next king of Israel in Hebron. And at this point in time, David has just one of the twelve tribes following him uh, as, as the king. David is informed of the heroics of the men of Jabesh-Gilead, and they're going to the city of Bet-Shan and removing the remains of the bodies of Saul, King Saul, and his sons that had been hung up as trophies on the walls of the city of Bethshan, and David thanked them for their heroics and then further informed them of the fact that he was now recognized as the king by the tribe of Judah and they should not recognize and he was, wanted them to understand that he would not misunderstand their loyalty and, and uh, heroic gesture toward Saul and toward his family and toward their bodies as any kind of a threat to him. In other words, paranoia on Saul's level is no longer a part of the kingship of Israel. David would not retaliate or view their loyalty to Saul as, as a disloyalty to him. And then we pick things up here now in chapter 2, verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now, in absolute opposition to the will of God, uh, Abner makes Ishbosheth the uh, remaining son of Saul that has evidently spared, was not involved in the battle, and thus wasn't killed in the battle against the Philistines. He makes him king over the remaining 11 tribes of Israel. Abner was uh, Saul's cousin or his uncle, could have been one or the other. We don't know necessarily from, you know, the way it's described in the Hebrew. He had been a captain of Saul's army. Somehow he has survived the battle with the Philistines that... Uh, David and his sons had been killed in. He was probably leading a separate thrust of, of uh, Jewish soldiers against the Philistines and, and hadn't died in the battle. Abner was the uh, general of King Saul. He was the one that 
David chided earlier in his uh, fleeing from Saul when Saul was trying to hunt him to death and he had gone down into the camp and removed Saul's spear and his water jug and uh, Abner's responsibility was to be a bodyguard to uh, the king as well as his, his commander or his minister of defense and David kind of chided him for not protecting the king a little bit better. Because Abner was a blood relative of Saul, he had kind of a carnal, fleshly um, desire for this position of king to remain in the family. Obviously, when you have within your family the single most powerful position in the nation, uh, it brings influence to your tribe, influence to your family, great power, great wealth. Abner knows full well that David has been called by God to be the next king of Israel. He had heard his king, King Saul, declare it to David. He had been a witness to it twice, where Saul declared to David, you're going to be the next king, now I know it to be true. So really what Abner is doing here, he's up against God and what he's doing. He knows better than to do what he's doing. And even the other 11 tribes that are going to join him in setting up Ishbosheth as the king of eleven of the tribes, as a resistance to David becoming the king of the whole nation, uh, word had to have filtered through all of the twelve tribes that David was to be the next king. So this is wrong, really, on every level. And they're going to find out that God gets His way. God, God wins, and it's wonderful when He does win. But you don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And, and he is definitely on the wrong side of it, wanting to keep the wealth and the power within the family. He brings Ishbosheth over to Mahanaim, which is a city that was on the east side of the Jordan River. He basically gets him out of Israel because Israel has essentially been overrun now by the Philistines. And so he is going to be a king, but he's going to be in modern day Jordan and not even be able to rule. Uh, from the uh, Israel side of things, that's how shaky things had become. It's not much of a kingdom that he's ruling over because of the Philistines' victory, especially in the south over the children of, of Israel. And so he made him, verse 9, king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Eph Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, over Benjamin, and then really to encapsulate all of it over all of Israel. And so David is the king over one tribe, Ishbosheth, uh, the son of Saul, surviving son of, of Saul. He is ruler over eleven uh, of the tribes. And Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So he began to reign at the age of forty. And uh, so it raises the question, why in the world wasn't he in the battle with his father and his other sons? Well, not every son is made for warfare. Not every one of them is made for battle. And we're certainly going to see in Ishbosheth that he is a kind of a weak man. He's a wishy-washy man. He has a difficulty standing up, uh, even in conversation, much less in a, in a battle. And, and so we don't really know why he, he wasn't in the battle, but... He clearly does not possess what is required to rule over 
uh, much of anything, much less a nation of God's people. So uh, this is the guy that's been put in there. It's all Abner's doing. The Lord has nothing uh, to do with it. And he's, it's, it, life's going to become very, very miserable for him in all of this. I really pity him in, a, in one sense. So he was made uh, king. And, uh, he, uh, and, at the, and verse 11, And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So David has been waiting ten years fleeing Saul in order to become the next king of Israel. Finally looks like he's getting, making some headway on this and he's recognized by one of the twelve tribes. Uh, significantly only his own tribe, and then the other 11 aren't, um, aren't recognizing him. And he had to, I mean, you put yourself in his shoes, he had to feel like, all right, Saul is dead, he didn't rejoice in that, but now's the time, this whole promise that God has given me that I'm going to rule over the whole nation, this thing's just going to take off and it's going to happen, you know, and move quickly, and it doesn't. He has to wait another seven and a half years ruling over one tribe before he ever becomes a ruler over all twelve tribes and possesses the fullness of, of the promise that God had given to him. How many, how many of you just love waiting? Not too many of us here. For the sake of the tape, there are no hands currently. I mean, waiting isn't an easy thing to do. Sometimes waiting on God is not an easy thing to do. Waiting for a husband, waiting for a wife, waiting for a job to open up, waiting for something related to ministry. And here, here is this whole thing of David. He finally gets to this place, and now he's like in this seven and a half year period. That's a long time. When you already got ten years on the other side of that thing, he's going to rule for a total of 40 years. So he's waiting a long time. And, but he walks by faith. God has given him the promise, he sees the progress, and he's okay with that. I want to share with you just a couple of verses that are my favorites in case you're in that kind of place tonight where you're waiting on God for something and, and uh, looks like you're being forced to wait a little bit longer than you anticipated. Usually when God tells me he's going to do something, I've, I've got the 48-hour clock kind of going on it. I don't like to think in terms of years related to that, but God thinks in terms of years. But one of the passages that, that I really like is in the book of Isaiah, for you taking notes, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, God declares, For since the beginning of the world men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God beside you, who, and here's the description of God, who acts, A-C-T-S, bad dental work, he acts, he doesn't ax them, he acts, who acts for those who wait for him. It's very important to know that when we are waiting on God, we look at it and we say, nothing's happening, lots of things are happening. God is working while we're waiting. David has now been prepared by God to become the next king of Israel. He's ready to go. But the nation isn't ready. If David just takes and thrusts himself and forces himself on the nation to become the king, he's going to put himself in the middle of all kinds of drama. 
Ishbosheth and Abner and uh, Rechab, we're going to talk see a little bit later in a chapter or so. All kinds of things are, are just messy, messy details that God has to work out among the nation before He plunks David and puts him in that place. So anytime we have to wait, we know that God is further preparing the situation for us. He's always working while we're waiting. Another passage that I like, uh, especially in this vein, is again from the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 18, where it declares, Therefore the Lord will wait. Rats. But fortunately the verse doesn't stop there. We know He'll wait. Therefore the Lord will wait that, as a reason word, He may be gracious to you. And therefore He will be exalted that He may have mercy on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. Anytime God waits on a promise He's given to you, or a promise from His Word, it's because He wants to do something even better than you're thinking about. Again, you sit here and God has given you a promise related to a spouse or related to some situation in life. It just seems like He's making you wait so long. You've seen 20 men or women go by in your life, any one of which you'd been happy to marry. The green light. Why has He got you waiting? Because He's got something even better in mind. We can take it all the way through the different circumstances in life. When He makes us wait, it's because He's got something better in mind. And so David is forced to wait here, and to his credit, he is very, very patient and waits on the Lord. We don't see him striving or trying to force things or make things happen at all. He just waits on the Lord. God got him this far. God took him out of the sheepfold. God raised him up, kept him alive for those ten years. God has made him a king over one tribe. He's seeing progress, and he's just going to wait on the Lord to bring the rest of it the rest of the way. Now, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth. Uh, the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. Now this represents a um, aggression on the part of Abner. He has left the uh, the east side of of the Jordan River, and he is now penetrating into the area that is held by David by Judah. So this is an aggressive act that he's committing. Joab, who was kind of David's general. Uh, the son of Zeruiah, uh, the servants of David, he went out and he met them with a group of men by the pool of Gibeon. So he gets intelligence that there's kind of a penetration, a military penetration by Abner. He takes a military force out and he uh, intercepts them there at this pool of Gibeon. And so they sat down, these two, uh, you know, forces that are, against one another, one on one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And then Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And so uh, what Abner is calling for here isn't some kind of a Greco-Roman wrestling match or something like this, some kind of an Olympic uh, competition between representatives of, of each of, of the armies. What he is uh, challenging 
Joab. And what he's proposing here is what is known uh, from the ancient world as representative combat. And this was done where they would take, give us your best, six of your best men, and, and I'll take six of my best men. Here it's a larger number uh, than, than that. We're going to see that there are 12 on each side. Give us 12 of your best Navy SEAL special ops on your side. We'll take 12 of our best. And then they will fight to the death to determine which two of these armies is militarily superior. So it was a way to establish the superiority of one army over another without both armies having to engage in a full-scale a bloody conflict. And so the egos were all kind of, there's a lot of ego involved here between Joab and Abner. And so all the ego got satisfied related to it, but uh, there was less destruction of, of life. And so they arose, they went over by number 12 from Benjamin, followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 from the servants of David. And each one, uh, as they were released then to fight, grasped his opponent by the head. They thrust his sword uh, in his opponent's side, so they fell down together, and therefore that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. And so here are these very elite, trained in, in, in military action and warfare, and uh, they fought to a draw. All, 12, all 24, 12 on each side, are killed in the battle. If one side had won, then maybe that might have been the end of it. But because all of them died, it was all kind of a draw. Now the only way to determine kind of the superiority of the military or the armies was for the armies themselves uh, to engage. And that's exactly what happened. And so there was a very fierce battle that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And so this fierce battle occurs. The men of Israel are, are defeated. They begin to flee now in disarray. Now the three sons of Zeruiah were there. And here are the three sons, Joab and Abishai and uh, Ahasuerus. Let's see, my eyes are... Yeah, no, I'm, I, I just got to find the verse here. Asahel, there it is, okay. So these are the three sons, the three uh, brothers. It's interesting that the, uh, these three brothers, they unite together. They see that they've defeated Abner and his army. They see an opportunity. They're going to do what David never wanted them to do, but they see a chance now to deal a very decisive blow to Abner and the army of Israel and uh, defeat them in a big way and then kind of pave the way now for David to become uh, the king of, of, of all of Israel and maybe the entire nation would then uh, unite around David. These three brothers were all sons of David's half-sister and uh, Zeruiah who is mentioned there. So they are all three of them David's uh, nephews. And they're very, very, uh, very, not only were they blood relatives, but this wasn't nepotism or anything like this. The, these were very skilled military men, and David was happy on some level at least to have them. We'll get into that in a moment. That's a heavily qualified statement. He was uh, happy to have them in his, his military. So we're told that Ahas uh, Asahel here, 
he pursued Abner. Or no way saying I'm going too far. Asahel was as fleet of foot as a wild gazelle. Never watch those nature stations and you watch a gazelle run. It's beautiful. So graceful. So, I mean, they could just run such distances. It's beautiful to watch. So what we're told here is this guy could just flat out run. Now, when I was in junior high and high school, we didn't have anybody named Asahel. We had a guy named Rod McDaniels. Could that guy run? Whoo! Just a natural. The rest of us got out there and we ran like Frankenstein. You know, so it's just painful to watch. That guy could just put on the shoes and just go. It was a delight to watch. It was a delight to be lapped by him in a one-mile race. So this guy could really, really run. And so he puts his sight on Abner, and in going uh, after him, he didn't turn to the right hand or to the left hand in following Abner. He says, I'm going I'm to run that guy down, and I'm going to kill him. And, and so it didn't matter what was going on around him. He's focused on Abner. I'm going to take that guy out. Well, Abner's got some kind of distance between him. Abner's an older man. He's not going to outrun this guy. So he looked behind him, and he said, Are you Asahel? And he answered, I am. So, all right, we got him identified. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left hand and lay hold of one of the young men and take his armor for yourself. So, Asahel's quite a runner, but... I don't know how he scored on the SATs on this. He's, he is running after Abner, this guy that is just amazingly experienced in battle and warfare, and he's not carrying a weapon, he's not wearing any armor. So Ab, Abner looks at it, and he realizes, I can take this guy, I can kill this guy if he's got armor from head to toe, and he's got ten swords on him, I can kill him like nothing. But if he comes running after me like a gazelle and he doesn't have any armor or any weapons on him, I mean, it's not even going to be a fair fight. I'm just going to make Joab upset and, and he's going to want it. It's going to start a blood feud with the family. So he encourages him, stop and grab some weapons from somebody near you. And if you're determined to fight me in battle, at least face me armed. And, but uh, Asahel would not turn aside from following him. So just keeps on running. So Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me, for why should I strike you to the ground? I'm going to kill you like a flea. How then would I face your brother Joab? If I just kill you just like this and, and all, it, it, it'll, it'll put me in trouble with him, and I don't want to have any trouble with him. I don't want any blood feud with your family. However, he refused to turn aside. So here he is. He's running. He's running. He's running. He's, he's narrowing the distance between him and Abner. And just about when he's within those last few steps before he's going to just jump out and dive and tackle uh, Abner, Abner, therefore, he just stopped and planted himself in the ground. He thrust his spear back. <clears throat> and when he did that, Asahel, who was running full speed, just came up 
right on the spear and the impact was so strong, we're told that the blunt end of the spear went through his stomach so it came out of his back. So he was moving fast and Abner became an immovable object. Again, very seasoned in war. And then he, came, he fell down there and he died on the spot. And so it was as many as came to the place where uh, Asahel uh, fell down and died, they stood still. So as these men of Judah would come by and they would see his body, they realized, oh no, one of the brothers of Joab has died here. And so they stopped out of respect or maybe out of shock. Joab and Abishai, the other two brothers, also pursued Abner. And the sun was going down, so they've put in the better part of a day now in this fight when they came to uh, the hill of Amma, which is before Gaia by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon. And now the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took their stand on the top of a hill. So Israel's being badly beaten. But they are seasoned soldiers, so they, find, they cluster themselves at the top of a hill. Uh, high ground was always ve- is always very favorable ground in the ancient uh, battles, uh, because it, especially in hand-to-hand kind of weaponry, so they've got on their very, very favorable gar- ground. They're at the top of the hill, and Joab, when he comes on the scene, he realizes that for us to take and attack them from this position is going to result in a lot of casualties. And so this is uh, very you know, strategic and wise what Abner has done here. And then Abner called out. He finally has a position of strength in the battle in the course of the day. And he called out to Joab and he said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the latter end? How long will it be until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? So he, with uh, some kind of uh, bravado and, and machoism, he's essentially proposing a ceasefire and an end to the host, uh, hostilities. And then Joab said, recognizing that his position is not a good one uh, in, in light of the high ground of, that Abner possesses, he declares, As God lives, unless you had spoken, surely then by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. In other words, he said, If you hadn't said something to call off this battle, we'd have fought We have enough energy left to have fought you all the way through the night. And so everybody's kind of taken the tough stand here on on things. But Joab, realizing the, the situation, he blew the trumpet. And all the people stood still and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. And then Abner and his men went on all that night so they when they got a chance to escape they took advantage of it went through the plain crossed back over the Jordan River went through all, all Bithron and they came to Mahanaim uh, it is it is highly likely that when Joab accepted kind of this ceasefire proposal by Abner that he did not know about the death of his brother at that point. Otherwise, it's pretty likely he would have fought to the last man. 
So here is Abner. He probably feels David doesn't know that I have killed his brother in battle. And so we're not going to wait around, set up camp, and then go the next day. He spent the entire night getting out there and, and uh, returning to their stronghold of their capital. Joab, so he returned from pursuing Abner. And when they had gathered all the people together, there was missing of David's servant, servants, 19 men and uh, Asahel. So 20 men died on, on the, the Judah side of things, but the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who died. And so it was a very much of a one-sided battle. We certainly see that among these uh, 600 men that had followed David during those 10 years in fleeing from Saul, they had become very, very seasoned soldiers. And uh, so they were a couple notches above, uh, you know, these men that had pursued them all those years and had been unsuccessful in finding them. And so then they took up Asahel. They buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. They all came from Bethlehem, buried him in his hometown. And Joab and his men, men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. And now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And so uh, evidently this was not the uh, final you know, battle that they, the two sides had uh, faced off on. There were, there were continual battles uh, through the next couple of years, and uh, David and his men were winning these battles consistently one right after another. All of it is a sign not only to David, but also to the rest of the nation that God was with David. That one tribe would withstand 12 tribes. It didn't make any other sense except to see it as God's favor being upon David's life. And so uh, this, this was the progression that was going on. Sons were born, verse 2, to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Uh, the third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, uh, Shephatai. Let's see, hold on. Shephatiah, there we go, the son of uh, Abital. And the sixth, Ithrim. Boy, there's a name for you, isn't it? That's weird. That's just weird, really. I'm, that gives me the creeps. But anyway, the sixth was Ithrim by David's wife, Eglah. I don't like her name either. But anyway, that, that's David's problems. And these were born to David in uh, Hebron. So each of his wives, he's, he is at this point during the seven and a half years in Hebron, he continues to... Uh, add additional wives. And we read about three additional wives being taken uh, here. And each one during this period of the seven and a half years, each one of these wives bears him a son, probably more than one son, but the firstborn of each of those wives' sons are, are listed here. And uh, so 
the, uh, this was a little bit of what David was up to. It's interesting in this listing of these wives, we notice at the end of verse 3 that um, Absalom was the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. And so for the first time in Israel's history, um, we see uh, a mention of a political marriage among the kings of Israel. Uh, a king marrying for the purpose of establishing some kind of a relationship with a neighboring kingdom. And so David began that. This is a big problem in David's life. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is what David did. This was a political marriage. It's the kind of thing like you read about all through history in every, every part of the world where people would, when they'd get into polygamy, or even where there wasn't polygamy, where they'd have a son or a daughter that could mar would marry one time, say in Europe and all of these kings and the nations and all that stuff. A lot of these people were married off in order to gain a, a blood relationship with an enemy or a potential enemy of another nation. And so this is what is going on. Part of the reason that God forbade the, the Israel's kings from multiplying wives, and he, for, he forbid it, was for this very reason. Uh, this is a fault on David's part. God did not want any of his kings thinking that their security came from some kind of an arranged marriage or some kind of relationship or covenant with the pagan nations around them. He wanted them to understand that the strength of their nation was Him and Him alone. And so this is not a good thing that is, is happening. And the multiplication of these wives and all of this kind of stuff that David is doing here. And God had forbid it. He, is, he had said in the book of Deuteronomy that when you have kings, they are not to multiply wives. They are not any different than anyone else. They can have one wife and one husband, and that's what the marriage is supposed to be modeled. So David models an entirely different thing, and his son is going to take it off the graph. By the time Solomon gets done with his marrying and his concubines, he ends up with a thousand wives and concubines. There's some instability, I think, in something like that. It's all a violation of God's law. And David is beginning to display a weakness in his life that's ultimately going to lead to his terrible sin with Bathsheba. But I think one of the great lessons from this passage, and it's an important lesson in our Christian lives and certainly in our ministries, sometimes people look and say, why didn't God judge him right on the spot? Why did he wait so long? Just because God doesn't judge us immediately for some sin, it doesn't mean that sin isn't going to catch up to us someday. Again, as we saw this morning, God will give people some rope, enough rope to do something good with it, or enough rope to hang ourselves with it. And so just because God doesn't come in and hammer someone right away, over some sin. And I think it's, it's a, it, this, is this is a very important part of maintaining a holy life before the Lord. And sometimes we can get into some kind of a thing where we start to fudge a little bit in terms of obedience to the Lord. And He doesn't like just hit us right away on things. 
And how often he will bring this kind of thing, and it's, and it's a lesson that's repeated throughout the Bible, but he'll remind us and he'll speak to our hearts and say, just because I'm not judging you right now doesn't mean that I'm okay with what you're doing here. I tell you, it puts the fear of God in me to repent of it and to turn from it before the sin actually does end up eating me up. And so... Uh, David makes, uh, 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 you know, this is very, very wrong in terms of what he's doing. And, and I, I think the other thing that it teaches us here, and it's very, very important to, uh, for us as, as Christians in our, our service to the Lord, is that great temptation that leaders, and we are meant to lead in this world, not to follow in this world as Christians, but there's this great temptation for leaders to develop a sense of self-entitlement to think that they are different than everybody else that the law of Moses the law of God's word that applies to everybody else but I'm special if you knew all I had to go through if you knew all I faced if you knew all the pressures I was under as a king and God understands I'm a little different than everyone else. So these rules, these laws, these commandments, those are all for somebody else. The average people. But God understands people in my position, David and others would say, we, God winks at this and he, and he blinks at it. And it's a great tendency, this, uh, this sense of self-entitlement. A great temptation, not just among men, but you watch it in politics even today. When people get access to and power and position and great wealth. And I look at it and I, I say to myself, if a man as spiritual as David, as great a heart of love for God as David had, is prone to this temptation, to this kind of a lie that he's different from everyone else, then surely it's something that all of us can be susceptible to and, and to steer clear uh, of all of it so we don't fall prey to it so this is a great great mistake great sin on David's part now so it was now it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul so Abner is basically it's kind of like when you know, Saul died. We see it all over the world today. It's happened all the way through human history where a leader dies and basically the military rises up and takes control of the country, but they don't want it to look like the military has risen up and taken control of the country. So they've got to have some kind of a political puppet, you know, to put out in, in front to make it look like this is a legitimate you know, rain that's going on here. So for Abner, his whole thing was all about controlling uh, Israel, and he just found this weak man that he was using, Ishbosheth, to kind of uh, control the nation, but give the appearance that it was something else. And so he's now strengthening his hold and 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 uh, on on that northern kingdom of Israel. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah. She was the daughter of uh, Aiah. And so, uh, evidently, Saul went in and he, lay, uh, I mean, uh, Abner went in and he lay with this concubine of Saul, 
Ishbosheth took a lot to upset this guy and to, to stand up against Abner, but he finally did it and he said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? So he confronts Abner, and he's a weak man, but even this pushes him to confront Abner. What was happening here and the significance of Abner going in and having a sexual relationship with Saul's concubine was more than the sexual immorality. For someone to go in and lay with the wives or the concubines of a king was their way of communicating that they are the new man in charge in this kingdom. The fact that a man could go in and lay and have a sexual relationship with a wife or a concubine of a king meant, for all intents and purposes, this person has all of the power in the nation. Because if he didn't have it, somebody would have killed him, namely the king, before he did it. So he's communicating a lot by what he's done here. And he's basically saying, I'm in charge here. I've taken over here. Remember when David is forced to flee from Jerusalem a little bit later in Israel's history because of the rebellion of uh, Absalom against him. And when David flees with his men out into the Judean wilderness and his family and all, forced to flee, one of the first things that Absalom did in Jerusalem was he took David's wives or his concubines and, and under the counsel of Ahithophel, he went up on the rooftop and he lay with his father's wives and concubines. And what that communicated to the rest of the nation of, of Israel was there can be no reconciliation between uh, Absalom and David. No one would forgive this. And it was communicating, Absalom was communicating, I am the new king of Israel. And so this is, is what, they, uh, what he was doing. And so uh, Ishbosheth uh, confronts him uh, related to all of this. What have you done? Why have you done this? Abner's reaction, he became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth. And he said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Apparently a saying that was going around in those days. Now we think of dogs, we love dogs, don't we? Yes, they're little pets, and we, you know, like to have them, and we do all kinds of things for dogs. And, but in those days, to talk about a dog, they were just wild animals. They were looked down upon. Now, there's hardly anything more useless in life than the head of a dead dog. What do you do with that? And when you got a, the head of a dead dog from uh, Judah, which is the, the tribe that they're fighting against, it's Abner's way of saying, you have just really, really insulted me here. You've called me, a, you know, the lowest of the low. He said, today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, and to his brothers, and to his friends. And I have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. He's saying, I've made, I'm everything to you. Without me, you're dead. I'm the whole reason there's a northern kingdom of Israel here in these 11 of the 12 tribes. You owe everything to me and you're going to come and you're going to confront me related to this. He never answers Ishbosheth's question. He just makes this big old hubbub about it. And, 
and, and is indignant over, uh, over the accusation, you owe everything to me, and then he makes a threat against them. He said, may God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul. See, he knew it. He knew it. He'd been fighting against it for two years and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. He says, that's it. I'm done with you. I'm going to deliver all 11 of these tribes that I delivered to you. I'm going to deliver them to David, and he's going to be the king over all of Israel. And Ishbosheth could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. There was nothing that he could do. He was a figurehead. There's, there's, there's very little. I, in fact, I can't find anything to like about Abner and all of this. He's just... There are people in, li- in life that you just naturally don't like to be around. And Abner is the kind of guy in, in, the, in the natural... I just don't like to be around this kind of guy. Where he's just a bully and he, and he does whatever he wants and, and everybody else just has to kind of... Uh, of of lump it and he and he uses his power and in just the world's worst way and then Abner he's true to his word he sent messengers on his behalf to David saying whose is the land saying also make your covenant with me and indeed my hand shall be with you and I will bring all of Israel to you he sends a messenger to David I'm done with Ishbosheth I want to line up with you now I, I, uh, he's just being treacherous and a traitor to Ishbosheth. David, I want to line up with you, and if you will make a covenant with me, I'll deliver all eleven tribes uh, to you, so that you will be king over all of the the whole nation. And David said, "Good, I will make a covenant with you, but one thing I will require of you: you shall not see my face unless you first bring." Uh, Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Now remember Michael, got to go back in the memory banks, 10, 12 years. Michael was David's first wife. She was the daughter of King Saul that he earned by paying a dowry of not the 100 foreskins of, a Philist, of the Philistines that Saul had demanded of him in the hopes that he would be killed collecting them, but David delivered 200 of those to him. So this was his, his first wife, and, and he, the first request that he makes for this reconciliation to occur is that his first wife would be returned to him. If not, then he said, you, then you, that needs to happen for you to see my face. And so David sent messengers to, messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband. Uh, Saul had in the meantime uh, given her away in marriage to another man by the name of uh, Paltiel, the son of Laish. And so as, uh, as Michael is being removed from that city and being brought uh, to David, then her husband went along with her uh, to Bahurim, weeping behind her. Abner said to him, go return. And he returned. So uh, the, uh, the, the rebuke that, uh, that is, uh, is made there.
David is a lot of, there's a lot of speculation about why David does this. And clearly David wanted to reestablish his marriage with Michael. That was his first wife. And so she had been given uh, in marriage to somebody else. Sometimes during the ten years of his wandering and fleeing from Saul, he receives news that um, Saul had given her away to another man and had uh, had been uh, uh, became another man's wife, and so very very cruel, very very vindictive, and uh, violation of the law uh, of Moses. And so the first chance that David has to exercise any kind of authority for her return, uh, that's what he he asks that that uh, would happen, that she would be returned. Somebody, sometimes people say, well, what in the world is his motivation for it? It's a, it's a pretty sad scene where she's being uh, pulled away now from Paltiel and he's weeping. He obviously loves her. They have some years of history now together and, and all. So what is David's motivation? We don't really know. But, I, but the Bible says love hopes all things. It believes the best. And so unless I'm giving evidence to believe the worst about the situation, I tend to believe the best about it. So David is in exile. He's fleeing for his life. And he gets the news that uh, she's become another man's wife. That's a very painful uh, bit of news through no fault of his own. And it must have been a sore spot for him uh, all of those years, and, which is completely understandable. And, and, uh, and so he wants her back. He was, she was his first love in, in, his, in his life. Some people look at it and say, well, this is a purely political move on the part of David. Because if David um, is recognized, if David is recognized by and large by the people as the next king of Israel, and he also has the daughter of Saul, the former king, as his wife, then that would kind of consolidate his hold on power. I don't know that I believe that, because I don't think David ever felt that he needed any of those kind of manipulations or things to be done. He knew the kingdom was coming to him. He knew he was going to be the king over Israel. I don't think he looked and said, all right, I think this will kind of exalt my, uh, strengthen my position to become the king ultimately. So it doesn't uh, add up to me. It's a sad scene where Paul Tiel is is, you know, crying and weeping, and obviously he's very sad by uh, but what happens here. We have no idea. Nothing is recorded for us in terms of uh, Michael's attitude uh, about being returned to her rightful husband. The problem, and, and one of the reasons I don't feel a great deal of, of compassion towards Paul T.L. is he married another man's wife, and he wasn't forced to do it. And so he had to know, short of David dying, that this was a consequence of his decision that he was going to potentially face one day. He did all of this in terms of pain to another man's heart. He did all of that to David and thought nothing of it. And then now he weeps and he feels bad because he's bearing the consequences of his decision making. And it's a little hard to feel uh, compassion for him when justice is uh, ultimately uh, meted out here. Now Abner 
had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of all the Philistines and the hand of their enemies. Abner then also went, here he is, he's going, he promised David, I'm going to go, I'm going to deliver these folks to you. So he, he speaks to the elders of Israel, verse 17. Then he went into the hearing of, of uh, the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's tribe, and, he, and he's going to deliver them. And then Abner also went and, uh, to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron. So speaking uh, to the, the people there and all that, seemed, all that seemed good to Israel in the whole house of Benjamin. And so he went to work to, to consolidate these uh, tribes to now come behind David using all of his power. And so Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. So they're going to kind of celebrate this covenant with a feast. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go after this feast and all, and and the covenant's been sealed and the agreement. He said, now what I've said that I'm going to do to you, uh, what I've uh, negotiated out among these tribes, now I'm going to go physically deliver them to you now and make my words into, uh, you know, the final, uh, final actions. So I will arise, gather all Israel to my Lord the King, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace to go accomplish all of this. And at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid. Uh, Joab wasn't in Hebron at the time. And they brought a lot of spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he had gone in peace. And when it says he had gone in peace, it means that David, David, when Abner came in, even though he had been for years an enemy to David and to his 600 men and also to uh, this, uh, this tribe of Judah, when he sent him in peace, it was like a diplomatic peace. Nobody was to touch him. No one was to harm him. Uh, it, it's just the Middle Eastern way of hospitality. When you bring someone in, you, you are a guarantee for their safety. And so he not only was safe in Hebron, but David sent him away with the idea that, that he would be safe from attack when, as he would leave. And so Abner came in, and all of the troops that were with him, had, and when they had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king. And he sent him away, and he has gone away in peace. So somebody immediately can't wait to tell Joab what it is that's happened here. So nowadays they um, develop a web page and a blog. But anyway, uh, then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. How is it that you send him away and he's already gone? Joab is livid over David's actions with with Joab here. And and he questions David's decision-making here. What in the world have you done? Look, Abner came to you. In essence, this was the perfect opportunity to kill him. Why did he even escape us alive? You sent him away, and he's already gone. And then he said, surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner, he came to deceive you. 
To know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you are doing. He just came in to see the lay of the city and all because he's going to attack you and he's going to wipe you out. That's what's going on. Now that's Joab. You're people that think that way. The Bible says we're not to think that way. It's okay to be conservative. It's okay to uh, be cautious. But Joab thinks the absolute worst about the situation. I mean, he takes it out, you know, three steps, four steps, ten steps beyond what was really happening here. So probably might serve you good in battle if you're a general or something to think, okay, what's the world's worst thing that could happen here? And then plan your defense accordingly. But he completely misjudges Abner and he's, he's living in a parallel universe at this moment and is going to lead him to make some very foolish decisions. And so he, he, but he's absolutely convinced that Abner doesn't, isn't looking for peace, but that he's looking for a chance to destroy all of them. And so when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent uh, messengers after Abner who brought him back to the well of uh, uh, Sirah. But David did not know it. So he sent messengers to him and said, Oh, by the way, you know, David's got one more thing to say to you. And uh, when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab's giving the appearance that he's going to deliver the message and needs to get him privately so he could whisper this important thing uh, to Abner. So when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. And there he stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of uh, Asahel, his brother. So he avenges his brother's death here. Cold-blooded murder, Joab commits right here. Premeditated, cold-blooded murder. When Abner, at least in this regard, he's better than Job in this, Joab in this inc- incident, Abner killed Asahel legitimately in self-defense on the battlefield. This is catching a guy, blindsiding him, and murdering him in, in cold blood. There is no way that Joab could take and, and justify what he had done here as being a kinsman redeemer and, and avenging the blood of his blood relative under the law of Moses because it doesn't meet the criteria for that. This is nothing but murder. This complicates David's life like you can't believe. This carnal, fleshly, impassioned action of Joab. Because here is Abner. He has arranged for the whole nation to come behind David and follow him. He's got a relationship with all of the other 11 tribes. He's promised to do it. They have given them his word All he needs to do is physically go to them to close the deal, bring them to Hebron, and David is the king over the whole nation. And instead now, not only does Abner get killed before he gets to close the deal, but he is killed by David's general, by David's highest military officer. So word now is going to spread throughout all of those twelve tribes that Abner has been assassinated by David's general. And and all of them are going to then begin to have second thoughts about 
you know, he's been, obviously he's been killed and this is a, a political thing that's happened. It jeopardizes the, it, it completely jeopardizes the uniting of the nation under David. The whole thing is thrown up in the air. And, and so this is what David faces. He has, Joab has really made David's life absolutely uh, miserable here. And so when David heard about what had happened here, David's been waiting years for this to happen. And then he hears, Joab has done this bonehead thing in the, you know, the 11th hour. And he heard it and he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner at the son of Ner. And so he openly declares his innocence that he had absolutely nothing to do with this death. And then he declared, let it rest the responsibility for this murder on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. Let there never fail to be in his house, in the house of Joab, one who has a discharge or some oozing from his body would render him ceremonial and clean, couldn't go to the temple, or is a leper, again ceremonially unclean, or one who leans on a staff, may his family never lack someone who is handicapped or crippled or falls by the sword. May they, there always be someone who is a casualty, militarily speaking, in the family or who lacks bread in, in, in a life of poverty. So it's, it's a poetic way, a powerful way of saying may the complete guilt of this act, act land upon Joab and upon his family. Abishai was also involved uh, in this, as we're told in verse 30. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because they had, he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. That was their justification, but there was no biblical justification for it. And then David said to Joab and to all of the people who were with him, tear your clothes, a sign of mourning, Gird yourself with sackcloth, sign of mourning. I want the whole Hebron, all the land that's been given to me, I want them to mourn for Abner. And he says to Joab, and I want you to do it too. I want you to wear sackcloth. I want you to, uh, to tear your clothes. I want you to do exactly this, even though you're the one that took his life. And David then followed the coffin as he was be, as Abner's body was being led to the uh, burial place. In other words, he's giving great honor and respect to this man as, as the king. And so they buried Abner in Hebron, and the king lifted up his voice. He wept at the grave of Abner, and all of the people wept as well. This isn't a feigned thing that David is doing. It, it broke his heart that a, a man like this would be blindsided and cold-blooded uh, and murdered. It was just a waste of a life to David. And David even sang a lament that he had written for the occasion over Abner. And he said, should Abner die as a fool dies, you know, just uh, killed because he was engaged in some kind of foolishness. But, but he wasn't a fool and he wasn't engaged in foolishness. He was murdered. He said, your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. He died. He wasn't a criminal. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And so David declares at the funeral, it is a very diplomatic way of saying, you were murdered. 
And Joab, those words must have stung Joab and Abishai. And, and the, everyone that was listening to it understood exactly what David was, was saying here. David is distancing himself from any responsibility or involvement in the death of Abner. And so then all of the people uh, uh, wept over him again. And then the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still that the day. And David took an oath saying, God do to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. He was going to fast throughout the day as a sign of mourning. Now all of the people took note of it. They watched David's response to this and it pleased them since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel, the word went out about David's response to this. They all understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And then the king said to his servants, these are his advisors, his highest officials, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel, his high regard for Abner. And David, again, he was the kind of guy that could forget ten years of a person doing wrong to him. He could get on the right side of the guy, establish a relationship, and let bygones be bygones. David had a great capacity for that. And so he was now in a new season of a relationship here with Abner. And, and so he held him in high regard. And then he declared, And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, speaking of his two nephews, uh, Joab and Abishai, he said, They're too harsh uh, for me. And, uh, and he said, The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his Wickedness, And so he, when he says, I'm too weak today, he, 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 when he declares, I am weak today, he's talking about the emotional state that the murder of, of Abner had, had left him in. And when he says, these nephews of mine are too harsh for me. In other words, they, they just do whatever they want. They don't wait for the orders of a king. They don't recognize authority and uh, they just go with with their the, their own harsh intents and so David lamented that um, David probably should have according to the law of Moses uh, meted out a very swift judgment on Joab but he doesn't do it we don't know why he doesn't do it he will do it late in his life when he hands the kingdom over to Solomon and uh, he will take care of three, four, five, six pieces of business that needed to be taken care of before his death. And one would be the judgment would be meted out upon Joab for what he had done here. But by then, David is a much older man and uh, a longer history with God and more willing to do the hard thing. According to the law of Moses, he should have been executed for what he did here. But instead, he leaves the judgment of all of this, the repaying to the wicked doer. He said, I'm going to leave that with the Lord. David does, has a lot of strengths in, in his leadership style. He has a lot of weaknesses, just like every single one of us. And, and one of the things he had as a weakness is he was a very poor disciplinarian. He did not like, as we'll, as you, we'll read through his life, 
he obviously did not like personal conflict. He'd rather go out and fight the Philistines in a battle and put his life at risk. Over and over again, in the raising of his children, when strength in his role as a parent was needed to reel them in, where a real strong personal uh, confronting of them was required, time and time again, David refused to do it. He did not like personal conflict. And he would endeavor to avoid it. And so I think the same thing kind of happens here in this place. He says, may the Lord uh, judge it, but the Lord is not going to judge it. The Lord is going to make David take care of it at the end of his life and the end of his reign. Well, we'll stop there tonight, obviously, and we'll pick things up in chapter 4 next week. Let's stand together and we'll pray. If you're here this evening and you have not yet made Jesus your Savior, trusted in Him for the forgiveness of your sins. We're glad you're here tonight, but I don't want anyone to believe that you're on your way to heaven for having listened to me for an hour. Uh, it's a lot easier than that. Heaven and, and salvation, a relationship with God, all of it is a free gift. And so it is, you establish a relationship with God, you receive His forgiveness by a moment in time putting your personal faith in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. There are going to be men and women up in front immediately after the service. They're going to have a badge on that says prayers. You can identify them easily. And they would love to pray with you to begin that relationship this evening. The most important relationship that you will make in life. If you need prayer for anything, they'd love to pray with you and pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. And we thank you that it's a living word. We recognize ourselves. We recognize other people in the people that we're reading about here. We recognize all of the circumstances and situations. And Lord, we're thankful that we're able to see these things from your vantage point, from your word, to learn from these things so we can learn what is the right thing to do, Lord, and in and, and every circumstance, and then also to learn what not to do in these same circumstances that we face, though most often on a much smaller scale. And so we pray that you keep your word alive, all the little things that you've spoken to us tonight to encourage us or to warn us even, Lord, Keep it alive. Let your work have its full work in each one of our lives, we pray. We love it to be so, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.